morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 12 through 28 if you'll turn there, and we'll be looking at verse 19 through 22 today on quenching the spirit, despising prophecies, and testing everything. So let us read the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who calls you, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and the encouragements from it. And pray, Lord, as we consider quenching the spirit and despising prophecies today, that you'd open our hearts so we would be careful to listen to you, to obey you, to not do these two evils listed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the middle of 1 Thessalonians, which are the end of 1 Thessalonians. You remember the book was written to a church that Paul didn't really have a chance to establish completely. He was forced to leave the city and abandon them to their leaders without fully giving them all the doctrines and all the beliefs and all the preaching and teaching that they needed. And so in this book, he's been covering over some of the most basic, most needful things for them. In this last section, he's telling them to respect those who labor over them, the elders, to deal with the Christian life in admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, not repaying anyone evil for evil, but doing good to all, rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. And now he tells them, do not, comes to the negative section of this last part, do not quench the spirit. Now, you might be wondering, what is he talking about? There are several possibilities because the Spirit has a lot of work that he does in the Christian and in the church. Most people, when you look at this, will think immediately of spiritual gifts, particularly the miraculous gifts. We saw them in the New Testament beginning at the day of Pentecost. You know, there's a mighty sound like a rushing of wind, and the whole house where they're sitting is filled and tongues as if a fire land on them, and filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so at the very beginning, 
of their ministry. The Spirit fills them. He gives them power. And note that the Spirit gives them utterance. This is not men doing their silliness and giving up to euphoria and babbling and making noise. This is the Spirit giving them utterance to speak in foreign languages for the people who are present to hear. And remember, there was a great awe of the hearers. These people aren't they Galileans, and yet they're speaking my language. How is that possible? It was a sign to them. Later we read that the signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were together, all together in Solomon's portico inside the temple. And no one dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And they carried out the sick into the street and laid them on cots and mats, that at least if Peter came by, a shadow might fall on some of them. The people were gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed, Acts 5, 12 through 16. These works, these miracles, including the speaking in foreign languages, were signs, they're called. They were signs that showed the people that God was present, showed that the Holy Spirit was present, and they were done in the Holy Spirit, not by the will of a desire of themselves. And you might be wondering, well, what are these signs all about? It goes back to Moses. Remember when Moses was called by God? He said, the people won't listen to me or believe me. And the Lord said, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Throw it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses ran away from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch the tail. And so he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And it says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And the Lord said to Gem, put your hand in your coat. And he put it in, and when he took it out, it was leprous, white like snow. And he said, put it back in, and he put it back in, and it was restored to normal. And said, if they do not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you are to take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Exodus 4, 1 through 9. So three signs. But what was the purpose of the signs? That That Moses might be glorified, that he might show his power and his greatness? No, that he might show that God had sent him. And that's an important point. Miracles and supernatural events through the Bible from beginning to end don't occur just randomly. They occur to authenticate a messenger that God has sent. They're not continual ongoing activities that we should all have today, but they're a sign that God is saying something, particularly something new, or that God is commanding, or in particularly in the prophets during the time of the kings, that you have sinned and God is not happy and you're going to be punished if you don't turn from your wicked ways. There were messengers of the covenant as well. But these signs of the Holy Spirit had a purpose. And the people were warned. In Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a dreamer 
of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass. That was the test. He did a miracle. He predicted something in the future, and it happened exactly as it was supposed to. That shows, oh, God has sent him. He says, but if he then says, let's go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. So they were to test not just if there was a miracle or a sign, but also what they were telling you to do, whether it was right and true according to Scripture or not. That you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and shall serve him and hold him fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer who dreams shall be put to death, for he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall purge the evil from your midst. So the false prophet, the one who is teaching against God, against his word, against his revelation, or including the worship or acceptance of other gods. That prophet was a false prophet. He was not a believer. He was not part of the people of God. He was to be destroyed. If his sign did not come true, he was a false prophet. If his prediction did not come true, a false prophet. If he was caught cheating a miracle, he's a false prophet. You can be 99% right and 1% wrong, You're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of God, and you need to be purged from the people of God. In Israel, it was put to death in the New Testament church. It is put out of the church. The prophets of our day boast that they get one right out of ten, and their prophecies are pretty vague, and they think people should follow them, and many blindly follow them, but that's not the way it should be. One mistake, and you're shown to be a liar and a fraud. And let's face it, if you're saying God says and God did not say, you're a blasphemer. You're lying about God. It's a very serious matter. In the New Testament, we see the same things about signs. Jesus complains, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. John 4:48. Yet many people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? John 7:31. The apostles also they devoted themselves, the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 42 and 43, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. God was authenticating the apostles as his, essentially prophets, as those who would teach them the new things about Christ that had not fully been revealed in the Old Testament. There was an incident in Samaria, you remember, in Acts chapter 8. Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, so he offered them money, give me this power too. Now, the power of miracles in the New Testament was not for every Christian. Not everyone spoke in tongues, not everyone had miraculous gifts. It was a sign of the apostles' truthfulness, and at times it was a sign that the people like in Samaria, had believed. Because who would believe Samarians could become you know, part of the church? The Jews certainly didn't believe. And when they laid hands on them and baptized them, 
They performed miraculous signs. They spoke in tongues from the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so they knew the apostles were teaching right, and they knew that the people were believers. And Paul, finally, his defense of his ministry in Second Corinthians 12, 11 through 12, it says, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul's ministry was authenticated as an apostle because he was doing these mighty works. Signs and miracles of the Holy Spirit were given to authenticate the person who was speaking. And the false person, the one who was doing it wrong, who was lying and claiming that they were doing miracles and issuing prophecies and teachings, but weren't doing it from God, were to be punished. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, the prophet, God says, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And he says, well, how will we know that the Lord has spoke, not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. One wrong prophecy was proof that this person is a false prophet and they were to be put out. So anyway, the Holy Spirit was authenticating the prophets through the miracles, through the signs, through the spiritual gifts, as we call them. And the prophet would only speak the truth of what God had said to him. If he spoke falsely, if he led them astray to other gods, to false religion, he didn't agree with what was taught in the scriptures, then they were condemned, blasphemers, false prophets, liars about God, and they were to put to death. Think of the book of Jude, which speaks of them very harshly, these false prophets. Yet people today want to accept them and show love to them and think, well, you know, they're mostly good. Most of the things they said was good. Now, if they have one wrong, false prophecy, they're not to be believed. They're not to be followed. They're not to be listened to. But is that what he's talking about in our passage today? Do not quench the spirit. Do we quench that spiritual gift? Do we quench the prophet's gift? No, not really. We can't do that. If God gives a prophecy, the prophet will speak. There's no quenching. If God gives a miracle, the miracle will happen. I don't think that's what he's talking about, even though that's often where we think. That's certainly a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people think the work of the Spirit here is the, the, that emotional euphoria that people get. The, my favorite one was the barking revival, where everybody in the church would start barking like dogs, so they'd start laughing hysterically. Or, you know, less blasphemous, people sometimes feel that, I have this strong feeling of great joy with this, so it must be from God. Uh, dangerous. Very dangerous. That feeling is not always from God. Remember what God said before the flood. He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
You know, our heart is not to be trusted as the sign of what's good and what's bad. When we test everything, we don't test it by how we feel. We'll get to that in a little bit, but we test it by a right standard. So the emotionalism isn't necessarily good. Now, there are times when we feel a great euphoria because we've understood something from the word we've never known, or we've understood the sin in our heart, and we've understood what to do about it, and we have this great joyful feeling. And yes, that can come from the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't squash that. But we shouldn't trust that. We should test everything. And the third one we already talked a little bit about was prophecy. That is one of the particular gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the most important ones for the Christian. In uh, the Belgic Confession, a man named Clarence Bauman wrote a book, The Overflowing Riches of My God, in which he expounds upon the confession. And about prophets, he says, God does not always come himself to speak to man. The term prophecy refers to God taking hold of a particular person and causing them to say certain things on his behalf. As Amos says, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? When God had spoken to them, their heart would burn. They needed to go out. They needed to speak. They needed to do. Just as the obvious and inevitable reaction to the roaring of the lion is fear, so the Lord giving a prophecy to a prophet and the prophet speaking is a natural reaction. Jeremiah added that he would no longer speak the word of the Lord because of all the derision he daily suffered from the people, but... He says, his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding back and I could not. He didn't want to prophesy because he was abused and hated. He's called the weeping prophet because nobody would listen to his prophecies of doom that God was going to bring justice on the people. And he wept for his people. Nobody listened. He didn't want to prophesy anymore. But what does he say? It was like a burning fire shut up in my bones. He couldn't not speak. He had to speak. Now the Apostle Peter tells us that no prophecy came about by the will of man, but holy men spoke from God as they were moved by his Holy Spirit. This is where the Spirit comes in. The Spirit could not be quenched by these prophets. They had to speak. They had to let people know what God had said, what God had assigned them to say. The Lord takes hold of people and compels them to speak the words of his choosing. The words spoken by the lips of man, in fact, come from heaven. Constitute a revelation from God. As the prophets repeatedly say, thus says the Lord. It is not their word, it is his. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, that we have the prophetic word more fully conformed, to which we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by someone's own interpretation. The written word did not come about because men had an idea and they wanted to make notes. It's not like the book of Confucius where he shares his personal ideas and wisdom. Men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he says. They're speaking, they're writing the work of the prophecies of Scripture, the writing of the Scripture, were revelations they brought from their their heart, yes, but that God put in them and moved them to do and to write. Scriptures are not the work of man, but of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. It's important for us to really have a right view of prophecy, particularly the prophecy of Scripture, not to despise it at all, but to love it and rejoice in it. Peter is speaking of the return of Christ, the destruction of the old heavens and the earth and the new heaven and the new earth that were to come. Speaking about that day, which is one of the main topics of 1 Thessalonians that we've been studying, he says in 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him. Now, Paul and Peter had had a little falling out over the Judaizers, but Peter had repented and Peter still has tremendous respect for Paul. Paul wrote it, given the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters in which he speaks of them in them of these matters, particularly the one we're studying. First Thessalonians talks a lot about the day of the Lord. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, a bit of an understatement, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, and note this, as they do the other scriptures. So in Peter's thinking, Paul's writings that we have in the scriptures are scripture just like the Old Testament, just like the books of Moses, just like the prophets, just like the writings. They're all inspired by the Holy Scriptures and not Paul's ideas. Now, in my seminary days, Dr. Battle gave us a definition of inspiration, which I want to read for us. It's descended from the old Princeton traditional one before Princeton went liberal. It says, inspiration is a special act of the Holy Spirit by which he guided writers of the books of scriptures so that their words should convey the thought he wished conveyed, should bear proper relationship to the other books of the inspired scriptures, and should be kept free from errors in fact, doctrine, and judgment. A very simple distillation of ten pages of Bible verses and notes about them. But we should take note of that. It is God's revelation to us. It is God speaking to us, the Spirit speaking to us, telling us what God wants. We can quench the Spirit when we refuse to hear him as he speaks in Scripture. And I think this is what Paul is really getting at here. In quenching the Spirit and despising prophecies, When we refuse to hear the Bible, that's what we're doing. Of course, this quenching is the sin that we need to deal with. Uh, Before we move on, I want to be clear that if we say the Holy Spirit is doing something, 
and he's not, we're blaspheming. If the Holy Spirit is really doing something, remember Jesus' miracles, and the Pharisees said, oh, and it might be Elzebub, not the Holy Spirit, that he does them. That's also blasphemy. We need to be careful. We need to test everything. That's what he says in our passage. <clears throat> test it, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil, every kind of evil. So prophecy is one of the special works of the Holy Spirit that is important and we can quench. Another work of the Holy Spirit, though, is our salvation. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, nothing we can do, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, and we poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, an act, really, of the Holy Spirit, not a work. It's not ongoing. It's a one-time thing. He does it, it's done. That passage I love to quote, I'll give you a new heart, I'll give you a new spirit, I'll put it within you, and I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause me to walk, cause you to walk according to my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Salvation is an act that God does. And that can't be quenched. Once God has changed your heart, you will automatically and willingly and desire to go to him with all of your strength and might. Jesus declares that all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Yeah, I thank God that that's how it works. That God the Holy Spirit works in your heart. He changes your heart. Because as a bitter, resentful atheist who hated Christians, there was no way I was ever going to have my own free will come to Christ until my nature was changed. And that heart of stone was taken out and the heart of flesh put in. When God's spirit was put in me, then I could see my sin rightly. Then I could see the offer of Christ rightly. Then I could truly repent of my sins and embrace Christ and desire him and choose him. And I couldn't not because his spirit had changed me. And so that work of the Holy Spirit, that act of the Holy Spirit of salvation can never be taken away, can never be quenched. The Holy Spirit also gives us assurance of that salvation. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, that he has given us his spirit, 1 John 4.13. Seeing the Holy Spirit abiding in us is what gives us our evidence of salvation, our assurance of salvation. How do we know his spirit is in us. Well, Jesus said you'll recognize them by their fruit, speaking of the ones who are not believers. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. If we bear good fruit, then we know the spirit is in our hearts. The fruit of the spirit is what? 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. In other words, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Our assurance of salvation through the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Spirit's work in our lives, through our new heart, our new life, and we see that we are being transformed. Can that work be quenched? Well, we know that God's sheep hear his voice and they will follow him. And Jesus says, I'll give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hands. If we are truly belonging to Christ, that can't change. However, our confidence that we truly belong to Christ does change. It changes because we see our fruit and we can question ourselves. Am I really living right by God? Am I really a believer? If I am, why am I living this way? Why am I in sin? Why am I not repentant? Why am I not transforming my life through the power of the Holy Spirit? We're told by Paul that as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. We may think we're saved, but remember at the day of judgment, many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we can be completely confident if God has worked in us. The work he has begun in us, he will carry through to completion, that we will go to heaven. However, if we are saved, we have a new life. It goes with our new heart and with his Holy Spirit being in us. And that new life would be worked out. And if we don't see the evidence of that, we don't see the fruit of that, then we do need to doubt where we are with the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit's work of assurance of salvation can be quenched, quenched by our sinfulness, quenched by our wandering from the faith. The last one I want to remind us of is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. It's an ongoing process. Salvation is an act of his free grace, God's free grace in the Holy Spirit. It's irresistible. Those who are given to Christ will come to Christ. It's perfect. It's complete in all believers. There's no room for improvement in salvation. We're either saved or we're not. But sanctification is the ongoing work. Not the, right? Salvation is we are judicially declared innocent before God because our sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross. Sanctification is our life improving from being totally in rebellion against God and working towards perfect obedience to God. We don't achieve perfect obedience, but that is the lifelong goal of the believer to improve our walk with the Lord, to improve, uh, the confession says, improve our baptism, meaning by which it means improve our assurance of salvation by our fruit, by our life, by our behavior. Uh, The larger catechism says, that sanctification is inseparably joined to justification, justification being that declared righteous, that salvation. Yet they differ. And then in justification, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. 
In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables us to exercise thereof. And the former sin is pardoned and the other sin is, latter sin is subdued. And one does freely, equally freely in all believers. We're all equally justified from the revenging wrath of God. And that perfectly in this life. We have it complete. There's no need to, there's no way to improve that. On the other hand, sanctification is neither equal in all nor perfect in this life, but is growing up towards perfection. Uh, important to note that sanctification should be going on in our life, that process of improving and improving, getting more and more holy and righteous. We are to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is an ongoing process. The Holy Spirit's work of sanctification is incomplete. It should be growing. And it is something we can quench. We can ignore God. We can harden our hearts. We can reject the the tools that God has given us, the the things that can help us to be sanctified, prayer and reading of the word and worship and fellowship with the believers, where we can get things like the conviction of sin and the encouragement to do what's right. We resist those things. We quench the work of the spirit in our life in sanctification. So how should we do deal with that? What do we need to do in order to not quench the spirit, to not despise prophecies? We're warned by Paul not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The context is a bit long, so I'll skip it, but it's in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. He starts off talking about us no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated because of the life of God. And he warns us, you know, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Uh, but speak what is fit for the occasion to give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of the redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we quench the Spirit's work in our lives? In a word, sin. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sin causes us to quench the work of the Spirit in sanctification, the work of the Spirit in our lives. However, if we humble ourselves, we confess our sins, we turn away from them, we purify our hearts, then we can draw near to God and his Spirit will be in us and fill us and the Spirit will help us in all things that are needed for righteousness. We quench the spirit through sin 
We encourage the work of the Spirit in our life through obedience and repentance. We can also quench the Spirit through ignorance and unbelief. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I was with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 25 and 26. Paul says to us in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Well, yes, that's aimed at pastors, but pastors and elders are to be exemplary Christians. All Christians need really to rightly handle the word of God. How can the, word, the Holy Spirit bring to remembrance the things you know if you don't know them? If you haven't studied the word... It's not going to come into your head through the Holy Spirit. He's not going to be able to use the word to convict you of sin. He's not going to be able to use the word to encourage you when you're faint-hearted. There's no way for the Holy Spirit to remind you of the promises of God if you don't bother to read them and learn them and know them. How can the Holy Spirit help you if you don't do your share of the work? Now, salvation may be all the work of the Lord and the Spirit, but our sanctification, our walk with God, is a cooperative work. I think the Spirit multiplies our efforts. If we make zero effort, we make zero progress. And so we need to study God's Word. We need to meditate upon God's Word. Meditate meaning mull over what it says, think about how it applies to our life, think about how we've lived our life if we're living it right according to what we're thinking about from the scriptures. We need to meditate upon it. We need to make use of those tools. We need to commit it to our heart, to our mind. The Holy Spirit won't be able to make use of us to convict us of sin or correct us or train us up for righteousness if we don't spend time in the Word. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, the believers. If we don't receive the scriptures, the word of God himself, if we don't believe that scripture is what it says it is, then we're really quenching the Holy Spirit's ability to use the word in our life. We're quenching the Spirit, we're hurting ourselves. We must receive it as words, commands from the Lord himself for it to be of use in our life. We also fall into the same trap if we treat it with indifference, if we're inattentive to the Word and to the Spirit. We don't make use of all those means of grace that we have, prayer, the Word, the Church, the fellowship of the believers, if we don't make use of each one of those in our life, the Spirit is not going to be there to help us in those things. Our brothers and sisters are a great source of encouragement, a great source of conviction, often great examples to us, both good and bad, that we can then look at our own hearts. If we don't make use of all of those things, especially prayer and the Word, then we're quenching the Spirit. Now, I started off talking about false prophets and false signs and false wonders and 
the nonsense that goes on amongst the heretical groups today. And that's really where he ends this section. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. When we test things, we have to know how to test them. You know, I could go test a used car to decide whether it was going to, whether it was good or bad. But since I know almost nothing about how cars really work and I don't know what to look for in problems, my testing is going to be useless and ineffective at determining whether the car is good. A professional mechanic might have a checklist of 100 things to check on a car to make sure it's all going to be good for you as a used car. You need a professional standard. You need a good standard. We have a perfect standard. Do not despise prophecies. I think that's what he's really talking about. Do not despise the things that have been told to us that we now have written in the word that they were having told to them face to face by the apostles and by the prophets. How do we despise prophecies? Well, by despising the word of God, which is prophetic. How do we despise the word of God? Well, in many, many ways. Refusing to accept it as God's teaching. Many treat it as a normal book. That's despising what it claims to be. It claims to be God's word, a revelation directly from God to us. Exactly what he wants us to know and to hear and to do. Sometimes we reject or go against what it says because we want to follow man's beliefs or society's beliefs or man's desires or man's wisdom or man's knowledge. But sinful man. And so we despise the prophecies. It says something we don't like. It says something the world mocks. In Christ's day, well, shortly after that, in the Apostles' day, really, the Greeks mocked the resurrection. There could be no such thing. Once you're dead, you're dead. Today, they mock that. They don't even care about that anymore. They mock things like God created everything. No, it sprang out of nothingness. Oh, there are spiritual things that we can't see and touch. No, 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 that's nonsense. And so they continue to mock to this very day, rejecting the things that God has taught us and following their own desires and their own beliefs. We know the examples. We can all think of them. Verses in our day and age that people do not want to hear and will leave the church if you read them out loud. (coughs) (coughs) Things like homosexuality, things like women's role in the church and women's role in the family. Uh, Things like all forms of sexual immorality, things like creation, things like the resurrection of the dead in the coming age. You know, being told that you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Because you think of eternity and you think of God, you know, that is rejecting the teaching of the scriptures. That is quenching the spirit. The spirit's work in revealing it to us. The spirit's work in reminding of us the things that are revealed, of understanding the things that are revealed. All of that is the work of the spirit. And when we start to put man first and God's word second, then we're quenching the spirit. (coughs) <coughs> uh, 
And uh, that's true of really any sins that we may take upon ourselves as well. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now, beginning with the very revelation of the word, but also the spirits using the word in our life. That's how we know. That's how we test. That's how we test the false miracles, the false prophets, the false teachers. But that's also how we test our hearts. We need to test our own beliefs. Is what I believe clearly taught in Scripture or not? It may be taught against the Scripture, may say nothing about it, or is it in Scripture taught in Scripture? You know, in the Old Testament, God repeatedly warned the people, do not add to what I have said, do not take away from what I have said. Men have done both continually throughout all of history, even to our day, and we do it too when we want to cover over our sin when we want to make our life a little easier, when we want to be a little more comfortable, we also add to or take away from the word of the Lord. We need to test our beliefs. Are we listening to the prophecies of Scripture correctly? We need to test our practices. Is what we do in our daily life pleasing to God? Is our anger, is our impure thoughts, is our... You know, name the sin. We're all guilty to some extent of most sins. You know, are we doing what is right? Are we trying to improve? Test ourselves. Don't be comfortable where you are. Test our results. Are we improving? Are we growing in our faith? Are we advancing or are we backsliding? Do things help us to be more sanctified or draw us away from God? We're going to test everything. What is good and helpful, keep. What is hurting us and causing us trouble, put away. You know, many of us who have gotten older know that with our diet. There are things I used to eat, soy sauce, that I cannot eat anymore. I tested it. I know it's bad for me. We need to do the same with the spiritual things. Test everything in our life. Test the prophecies, test through the spirit to know whether we have good or bad. We are to die to sin, die to self, live for Christ. If we live for self, we will quench the spirit. If we live for self, we will have to despise the prophecies, the scriptures. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your perfect word, that it is sufficient in what it has in it for everything we need to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, everything we need to know you, everything we need to transform our life. And though we have not the power to do it, we also have been given your spirit. Your spirit can aid us in all of those things. And so, Lord, help us to cleanse our hearts, draw near to you, 
Fill us with your spirit that we might be convicted of sin, enabled to turn from it, encouraged and enriched to walk according to it, that we might have greater assurance of faith, greater joy in you, and greater pleasing lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.